You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. motion picture ever made. David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock bring you the Grand Slam Prize winner that made motion picture history. Winner of the Academy Award, voted by America's critics as the best picture of the year. And now, as a result of a national poll, winning new honors as audiences throughout the country vote to see it again. The Selznick Studio successor to Gone with the Wind, Rebecca, brought to the screen with all the warmth and emotion that made millions of readers acclaim Daphne du Maurier's bestseller as the most exciting love story of our time. The fascinating Max de Winter lives on the screen in the person of Laurence Olivier. Why, it's Max de Winter. How do you do? The shy, unsophisticated young girl who dared to follow in the footsteps of the beautiful Rebecca is portrayed by lovely Joan Fontaine. How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? Not only in this room, it's in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Is Mrs. Van Hopper a friend of yours, or just a relation? No, she's my employer. I'm what is known as a paid companion. Oh, I didn't know companionship could be bought. There is mystery, love, and laughter in Rebecca, the motion picture still unsurpassed for suspenseful romance. Okay, hello again. This is Annie Rose Malamut, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. I'm here today with Laura. Hi, Laura. Hi. And Laura, before we talk about Rebecca, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Laura Westengard. I'm an associate professor of English at New York City College of Technology. It's part of the City University of New York. And uh, there I teach literature. I teach Gothic literature and visual culture specifically. And uh, I do queer studies. So I teach a lot of gender and sexuality studies classes specifically in uh, regards to literature. And uh, I have a book that just came out this year in October. It's called Gothic Queer Culture, Marginalized Communities and the Ghosts of Insidious Trauma. And um, I have been working on that book for what feels like a lifetime. It's really closer to a decade. Amazing. <laughs> wow. So it's amazing to have it out in the world. And uh, in that book, I look at how queer cultural productions, so not just um, literature, but also sorts of written production like novels and poetry, but also 
performance art and visual arts and uh, music and all of these other queer productions have gothicism sort of woven through them. And my book examines why that happens. Um, And ultimately, I argue that... uh, Queer folks in the United States in the 20th and 21st century have experienced uh, different kinds of intersecting aspects of oppression. They're marginalized in a lot of ways, and that leads to what I call insidious trauma, this kind of low-level, ongoing, accumulated trauma that um, arises from systemic and institutional oppression. Um, And so for for some reason... uh, Queers turn to Gothicism in order to navigate and express that trauma. And so I look at the ways that uh, queer culture is sort of inherently Gothic. Amazing. (laughs) So just, you know, to echo Tina Horn on her (laughs) podcast, Why Are People Into That? That is very much my shit. (laughs) So perfect. I'm so glad that you're here today. Uh, Why... Did we we kind of both decided to talk about Rebecca, but what are some reasons that you picked Rebecca? And also, when is the first time you saw it? Uh, Rebecca is a uh, deep and long-standing love of mine. I do not write about it. I haven't written about it or even or taught about it in a classroom or talked about it at a conference. It's actually something that I hold close to my heart uh, because I think I saw it when I was probably 10. For the first time, and when when I was a kid, I was I was you know sort of a weirdo. I was obsessed with uh, Sunset Boulevard, also. Oh yeah, I love that movie. And Rebecca, so there was this kind of um, high camp gothic noir vibe that I really loved. Um, but as a child, I will say I was very earnest about it. I didn't recognize the camp. I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing. I need you know I. I started wearing turbans and high collars and just like weird uh, vintage <laughs> hats. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> to try to embody these characters. And I will say with Rebecca, um, it wasn't the young woman lead that I was interested in being. No. I definitely wanted to be Mrs. Danvers, which we can get into. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Later. Well, that was kind of like my initial reaction rewatching this movie. And I've seen it many, many times. The first time I watched it, I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And one of my, f- I, we, I was like having an Alfred Hitchcock phase, mm-hmm. like watching all of his movies. Him. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, watched it on VHS uh, in my room and I was obsessed with Mrs. Danvers Mm -hmm. and you know on this rewatch I was my first initial thought was like Joan Fontaine sucks in this movie (laughs) like I was so annoyed by her she gets a little bit more like self-embodied at the end of the Mm -hmm. movie and I was less annoyed with her but I had never been so intensely annoyed with her watching it before and I was just (laughs) like Rebecca seems cool like Mrs. Danvers is the best I love Mrs. Van Hopper also like they all seem like the best and Mm -hmm. just are kind of these archetypes of women that are just maligned and like Joan Fontaine is like the diminutive kind of perfect example or of or somebody who doesn't know how pretty she is or just is like naturally feminine Mm -hmm. and I just kind of love like the high camp of Mrs. Danvers and Mrs. Van Hopper even and then like the ghost of Rebecca. Right, I was right. just going to say the ghost, yeah. The, yeah, who's the absence there. that's overpowering, yeah. Right, so 
Rebecca uh, is from 1940. Uh, it's an American film. It was Alfred Hitchcock's first American project and uh, his first film under contract with the producer David Oselznick, who was uh, wrapping up Gone with the Wind while production on this movie started. World War II also started during the production of this film, which was a big issue during the production because most of the cast is British. Uh, so it, it there was some, it, it was difficult to get it made. Uh, it's based on the 1938 novel of the same name by Daphne du Maurier. Have you read the book? I have to admit, I have not read I haven't the book. either. It's so, one of yeah. those, those guilty, you know, oversights. But I'm inspired to now, as I was sort of reading some of the stuff um, about Rebecca out there, just Googleable stuff. Um, I am more and more interested in the novel and how that you know came to become this film that I'm so familiar with. Yeah, and I've read uh, Jamaica Inn. Yeah, which was mm-hmm. another Daphne Du Maurier uh, novel, and I loved it. So I'm definitely going to be reading this now. So the film stars Lawrence, Sir Lawrence Olivier <laughs> as the brooding aristocratic widower Maxim de Winter and Joan Fontaine as the young woman who becomes his second wife who's never named. Yes. So I just kind of refer to her as the woman or the main character or Mrs. new Mrs. de Winter. Uh, and she's not named in the novel either. So it's very close to it in that way. And uh, Dame Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers and George Sanders and Gladys Cooper in supporting roles. So the film won the Academy Award for Best Picture of 1940. And it's the only film directed by Hitchcock to win Best Picture, which was kind of surprising to me. And it, it won other two other Academy Awards uh, or no, it, it won Best Picture and Best Cinematography, but it was a nominated nominated for 11 awards and uh, Olivier Fontaine and Anderson were nominated for their roles uh, and Hitchcock was nominated uh, along with the other screenwriters for adapted screenplay. So on this podcast, we don't often talk about movies that are highly critically acclaimed. Um, <laughs> we talk because, you know, we're subversive, controversial and sleazy cinema. But I still find this movie to even though it is you know considered one of the greatest movies of all time I think I I still consider this movie to be subversive in its representation of Mrs. Danvers in particular and maybe we can even we'll talk more about that obviously and just also everything that you study in relation to the gothicism and queerness I think is definitely present Absolutely. in this film yeah. right which makes it more than just your typical kind of oscar film like there are definitely a lot of subversive things going on yeah. in the story and even if they they didn't intend for it to be subversive which they may have but there's a lot of sort of reappropriation that queer folks have had and maybe others, but definitely like the queer community has watched this movie over the years and has uh, reappropriated it as a kind of like subversive um, response to something that may originally have not been so 
Right, mm-hmm. right. And Vito Russo talks mm-hmm. about this movie in the celluloid closet. Uh, he comes up a lot on this podcast and <laughs> yeah. you know, talks about the, the representation of Mrs. Danvers and, uh, you know, in that grand tradition of the, the lesbian predator yeah. trope. He's not he's not super kind <laughs> to her representation in the book either. Uh, sir, because Sir Lawrence Olivier wanted his then girlfriend Vivian Lee, who was starring in Gone with the Wind, he he wanted her to be in the part, the main part mm-hmm. of the movie. Uh, so he treat he was very upset that she wasn't picked. So he treated Joan Fontaine horribly, and this shook Joan Fontaine up quite a bit. And so director. Alfred Hitchcock, famous jerk, uh, decided to capitalize on this by telling her that everyone on set hated Mm. her. And this made her even more shy and uneasy, which is what he wanted from her performance. Gross. It's disgusting. In that grand tradition of, you know, auteur directors, you know, manipulating and lying to especially the women on the set to get what they want out of them. It's like the ends justify the means. Right. And Hitchcock was you know, famously abusive to his female mm-hmm. stars. And even his daughter said that he was abusive to her on set. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, just very upsetting because I really do love his films. And it's something to grapple with when you get such an amazing performance out of such horrible conditions. Yeah. Uh, and it's something I think about whenever I watch it. Per Alfred Hitchcock's instructions, Dame Judith Anderson rarely blinks her eyes while playing Mrs. Danvers. (laughs) And he also shot her, if you notice in the film, of course, he shot her so that she appears to be gliding (laughs) instead of walking. And he wanted us to see her the way that Joan Fontaine sees Mm. her, which Mm -hmm. is like this mysterious figure that could kind of enter at any moment she is constantly appearing and disappearing yes (laughs) obsessed with her (laughs) whenever rebecca's mentioned this i found really fascinating a synthesizer called the hammond nova chord appears on the soundtrack Mm -hmm. and this would later be used in many sci-fi films of the of the 1950s is that kind of like like a synthesizer so (laughs) specifically comes in whenever rebecca's name comes up each character's handwriting was also uh, chosen to highlight their personality. So the way that you analyze handwriting experts, analyze people's minds based on their handwriting, like that was very intentional. And that's why we see so many handwritten uh, notes and mm-hmm. things in the film. And David O. Selznick wanted the film to be faithful to the novel. But because of censorship codes at the time, they had to make Rebecca's death accidental. So in the novel, Maxim de Winter shoots Rebecca. Yes. And in the film, I mean, spoiler, it's been out <laughs> since 1940. So like, let's go, go gra- try to see it. It's a, like you were saying, it's kind of hard to find, but you found it on YouTube. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So it's an, an entirety on YouTube. And so they had to make her death an accident in the, in the film because part of the code at the time was if a spouse murders their partner, they have to, uh, they have to be punished yes. in the movie. And spoiler yeah. number two. He's not. He is not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So is, is there anything that you read about the production that we didn't talk about? 
No, um, something that I read about in terms of Daphne du Maurier um, was that she, her husband had an ex fiance mm. who had died, and she saw that that ex fiance's handwriting. Okay. And her last name started with an R, and there was this sort of grand flourish in her handwriting, and and she became obsessed with that as sort of a marker of what she could never be and never fulfill in in this kind of jealous um, orientation to his, oh, interesting. his ex. And so that's one reason that handwriting is also central to it. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and I know that there was also like some controversy, like somebody, another author sued mm-hmm. Daphne du Maurier because she thought that she copied her novel Blind Windows. Yes, apparently there were several instances of people claiming that she plagiarized. And um, this... When I read this, I it totally reminded me of the tradition of Gothicism. Gothic novels um, are sort of classically uh, pieced together from other bits of culture. So mm. if we think back to 18th century Gothic novels um, and... For example, like the what we think of as the the first Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, he writes that as a found manuscript and um, sort of pretends that it is something that already existed. But he also sort of pulled a lot of the the content from existing sort of stories and things that are out there. So, in um, you know maybe a kind of Frankensteinian style mm. Gothic novels and Gothic. Uh, stories are often sort of pieced together by the the pulled part remnants of other cultural productions. So oh, I think it's so interesting that she was, um, you know, people said that she was plagiarizing and, you know, maybe she was and that's not great, but it also is, you know, so gothic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really interesting that the idea of the gothic being pulled mm. together from all of these other things. Uh, so... Now that we've kind of talked about the background here, let's talk about the plot of Rebecca. We open with the voiceover of the the unnamed main character, and she is haunted by these visions of Manderley, this beautiful English Gothic mansion, which, uh, interestingly enough, they could not find a, a mansion that suited them. David L. Selznick didn't like anything that they looked at, so they ended up making a miniature hmm. of it. So the mansion that we see, the out, the exterior shots that we see are always the, the miniature of Manderley. Uh, and we see... We, we see Manderley, this gorgeous, expansive mansion. Um, and you're you are the expert here, but I and so you know correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of I felt like this was kind of typical of a gothic story, like setting the the stage kind of and then like working backwards, like starting with a starting with a setting and then expanding on that. I mean, what are you what are your thoughts on that? I think uh, there's a couple of things that seem sort of gothic about it. And one is a kind of a frame narrative. So this um, it's setting up a flashback, right? So that the whole film is going back to bring us up to the present in which she is dreaming about a destroyed Mandalay. Um, So that kind of 
structure where there are stories within stories within stories, mm-hmm. that's very gothic. Right. Um, but also, as you were saying, setting a stage gothic atmosphere is so important. Right. So maybe gothic novels don't always start with the house or the castle, but it is absolutely central to establishing the gloomy atmosphere that's characteristically gothic. So right. yeah, for sure. In that yeah. Way. Mm-hmm. And there's the, those high contrast black and white shots mm-hmm. of the grounds, uh, which are look very haunted. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock also wanted it to be sh- shot in black and white specifically. I mean, color film was available at this time, like yeah. Gone with the Wind is in color, right. but it, he wanted it to be black and white to specifically to be gothic. So the, the, the black and white cinematography in this is just gorgeous. He does so much with the, the contrast, the black and white contrast and shadows. Yes. I just throughout there are all of these like harsh gothic shadows of the architectural ornamentation sort of falling onto the characters, especially Joan Fontaine's character. Um, so she's she's imprisoned within this house. They're like these sort of gilded bars of a cage that she's trapped right. within throughout. Yeah. And it really it creates this sense of claustrophobia inside a grand mansion the things that's the thing that's supposed to be open and and huge and expansive is actually closing down on her yeah no that's really really well put so we begin in the uh, in the south of france we're back in flashback and monte carlo some years before and this a lone man stands atop a cliff and he's looking down on the ocean about to jump uh this is max to winter Laurence olivier and a woman joan fontaine stops him from jumping and he tells her to go away and he decides not to jump after all uh so kind of immediately thrown into psychological torment mm-hmm. <laughs> in the beginning of this film we meet Edith Van Hopper, who's this uh, pompous, rich old woman who Joan Fontaine works for as a paid companion. Uh, just a side note, I talk about Mrs. Van Hopper in a lecture I I give on uh, representations of fatness in film. Mm-hmm. And I find her character specifically very interesting because as we're moving into uh, you know, moving out of the depression and uh, into, you know, kind of this, we we start to see the fat woman as a symbol. This before the fat woman had been a symbol of uh, Im- impoverishment, and we start to see the fat woman be a symbol of uh, decadence and wealth mm-hmm. and the antithesis of the American dream. And I sort of found this interesting in that this is Alfred Hitchcock's first American production, even though it's set in England and, and the south of France. It's very much, she's very, her fatness is very much emphasizes her decadence her laziness you know we always see her in bed like she's supposedly quote-unquote sick and Mm -hmm. you know we you know she's just very much a villain and we see her contrasted with Joan Fontaine in many shots the two of them are next to each other and we we see like the natural femininity of Joan Fontaine contrasted with like the artificial femininity of Mrs. Van Hopper yeah there's that great shot where she puts out her cigarette in the cold cream 
<laughs> and it's like the the table, the vanity table next to her bed is sort of strewn with these beauty products like cold cream and in and sort of emphasizing the artificialness or the construction yes. of her beauty. But she doesn't even do that right. There's yes. sort of a uh, I get the and maybe I'm wrong, but I got the sense that she was supposed to represent a kind of a new money. I think you're reading her as uh, aristocracy. Yes. But she lacks the sophistication that mm. Rebecca represents as someone who's part of, um, you know, a lineage of aristocracy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I read that her her sort of gaucheness, her inability to read the cues that Maxim's giving her, for example. Right. And her pushiness and trying to insert herself into his world as a, a sort of metaphor of, of new money versus old money. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, that's definitely, I, I, I definitely see that. And I think you're right. I, I think she, there, there are some class things going on oh, and yeah. she's so, um, I mean, the huge, that's a huge theme of this movie is class and yes. she's so cruel to Joan Fontaine, which and outwardly cruel to her, whereas like Beatrice, the sister mm-hmm. later, is like sophisticatedly and slyly cruel yes. in that very like old money kind yeah. of way. Uh, and yeah, that's that's interesting to to see the contrast there. And then it's still kind of, I mean, the the representation of the fat woman as socially awkward, like mm-hmm. socially other, is is still very much present in her character there. That if she's if she is to be this gauche kind of new moneyed person, it's like she her fatness sort of emphasizes how she can't she she just can't she's socially other. She can't enter this sphere the way that she thinks she can. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's a joke. Right. right. In in that she would assume that she could right. enter it or that she might. I think her pushiness in terms of trying to um, have social engagements with Maxim is is it's like funny because she imagines that she might be an object of desire. To yes. Him. Yes. And it's like, wow, how could you ever? And there's some sort of there's some sly comments that Maxim de Winter makes as well about her, like, oh, that he feels so bad for Joan mm. Fontaine that she has to be around her. And it's like, of course, because her personality is supposedly, you know, noxious, but it's also implied that it's because she's fat. Frankly, yeah. 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 And I think there's, you know, a kind of a psychoanalytic reading, too, in terms of Joan Fontaine mentions at the beginning of the film that both her parents are dead. Yes. And it's like she's looking for replacement parents throughout the story. And one way is by becoming a paid companion to this maternal figure. And Mrs. Van Hopper is um, sort of a, a... bad mother she's overpowering and I think her her body is supposed to represent that as well yes. she's selfish she's more interested in her own appetites than taking care of um, a child and so she yeah. gives up on that search for that maternal and turns to daddy which we will get to <laughs> oh yeah you're right no absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean it's and we see this over and over again with fat women as like the overpowering mother figure mm-hmm. like even with 
Ursula and the Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Like she's the replacement for the mother that the Little Mermaid is missing, but right. she's this overpowering, twisted mother. Uh, misery, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the overbearing fat woman who keeps you hostage and you know monitors everything you do. And yeah, it's like excessive caretaking to, that becomes grotesque. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's seen in in some of the literature. People write that it's kind of a a rebellion against the Victorian era where um, the maternal body type was kind of, you know, pushed like corsets. They they make your waist small and your breasts bigger. And Mm -hmm. uh, they're supposed to emphasize like all those maternal, those Mm -hmm. supposedly maternal things about women. And, you know, then then we get we move into the modern, more modern era. And that's that's kind of um, exaggerated through the character of the fat woman. Um, but at the same time, you know, you could also say that the Victorians were obsessed with being uh, thin. So yeah. in, in many ways, so there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Um, so Mrs. Van Hopper calls Max over to have a drink with them. And she, you know, she's kind of talking his ear off. Uh, you know, I read her, I always read her as old money, but I, what you, I really, I think your interpretation is <laughs> more spot on frankly and she's but she's wealthy mm-hmm. and she's like name dropping um she's you know very much obsessed with status um max is obviously intrigued by the diminutive joan fontaine who uh you know stopped him from jumping off the cliff earlier and when max leaves mrs van hopper scolds joan fontaine for being so forward by when she said that she found monte carlo sort of superficial and uh it's, you know, it's just funny because Mrs. Van Hopper is obviously the most forward right. <laughs> in the situation. Uh, and she also mentions that Max's wife is dead and that he adored her. So this is kind of the first time we start to hear about Rebecca. And the seed is planted in John yes. Fontaine's head that he adored Rebecca, yes. which is part of the ghost that sort of overwhelms her throughout. She's reading all of these cues from everyone around her um, that he was obsessed and and was so in love and adored Rebecca. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She runs into Max at breakfast the next day and they eat together. And this is when we learn that she has no family. Mm-hmm. Both her parents are dead. Uh, her father was a painter. They were very close. So we're setting up her, her daddy issues mm-hmm. immediately. And people didn't understand him, and he he painted the same tree over and over throughout yeah. his career. So another sort of metaphor of obsession. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, so she mentions that she sketches, and Max says he'll take her driving and somewhere this afternoon to sketch. And this is he's already kind of ordering her around. Like that's the, their dynamic from the beginning, and will continue to be their dynamic for the whole movie. Yeah. They spend some time together and talk about Cornwall, where Max is from, and she sketches him. And she also reveals how she knows about Manderley, and that she uh, she used to she was speaking of it kind of wistfully and saying she, uh, and he supposes he'll never see Manderley again. So he's kind of decided he's done with Manderley. Uh, it's almost like 
every di- line of dialogue is extremely important and like full of weight yeah. in this film uh, because everything that people say is brought up again later. <laughs> and she mentions that a man drowned at the resort last year and he uh, he walks away kind of upset. Yeah. So this is where, you know. And this establishes his moods. Mm-hmm. So he is has all of these mood swings. He seems very, you know, as lighthearted as he ever gets and um, having a good time. And then one thing will trigger a temper. And so, of course, that plays out later when we find out more about what happened with him and Rebecca. But it also sets up, um, you know, we can read it in multiple ways. One way is that it, it, it's an abusive dynamic, yes. right? He, oh, look what you've made me do. Um, he's really he, abusive. Yeah, yeah, he snaps at her. He yells at her. He cuts her off. He walks away. He ends things abruptly. And then a minute later, when she, after she starts to cry, he says, oh, I, I'm so sorry. I'm, you know, and he, he, he always sort of like does this swing back to caring and apologetic. So she sticks around. Um we could also read it perhaps as a kind of a power, like an eroticized power dynamic between them as well. I'm glad you so, mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I have. I was thinking that as well. And you know, there'll be lots more examples that come up throughout well, throughout the discussion. But um, yeah, it's like extremely abusive, but it's also like a kind of a daddy girl oh, dynamic. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down as I was watching it all of the things that he says to her. Um, he says, you know. Eat up like a good girl. Yes. Stop biting your nails. Blow your nose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, he says, it's a pity you have to grow up. Yep. He even says once, you can't be too careful with children. Yes, when she puts her coat on. Yeah, yeah this is why I only want queers in my life because <laughs> we, uh, like, I, I feel like sometimes I say this to people and they're, like, horrified. And I'm like, <laughs> it's totally there. Yeah. Like, it's, it's like, disturbing and also sexy. Yeah, like, there's a reason that people read this as a romance. Yes. Um, when uh, Daphne du Maurier said she thought it was kind of creepy, she meant it to be dark and yes. all of the relationships to be um, kind of messed up, but people took it as just a straight up romance because right. there's something will I say Fifty Shades of Grey? Yes, I will. Right? Yeah. <laughs> there's something that sort of appeals to a, a mainstream uh, crowd that that ha- that involves these sort of daddy girl dynamics or or power relations. Um, it's but sexy they just, to people. Yeah, it's yeah. sexy, and they just they just call it romantic. Yes, and there's a lot to be said there too about um, toxic romance narratives and like there's a way to appropriate it that's consensual and knowing for people who are like in kink communities, but there's also ways to read it as um, just a replication of toxic romance. Yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. and. Also, his character and his moods, I also think of, like, the typical gothic brooding man. Right. You know, like Jane Eyre, Mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights, like this toxic masculine figure who is also, you know, mysterious and he's kind of ruled by his emotions and, you know, he could fly off the handle (laughs) at any minute and, yeah, definitely, definitely there. So... Uh, she hears Mrs. Van Hopper talking about how Max's wife, Rebecca, died from drowning. So she kind of puts the pieces together. And she dreams of Mrs. Van Hopper talking about Rebecca. 
And her and Max start spending time together behind Mrs. Van Hopper's back. Max is pretty cryptic as per usual about his life. Uh, and then I was like, oh, I hate how he bosses her around <laughs> in the beginning of the movie. And then by the end of it, I was like, oh, no, it's kind of hot. Like, I <laughs> like in the beginning on this rewatch, I was like, oh, my God, he's such a jerk. And then I was like, but yeah, like you were saying, there's everything is there. Everything is that all of those dynamics yeah. are present at once. And she says while they're driving in the car one day, I wish I were a woman of 36 dressed in black satin with a string of pearls. And Max laughs and says that she wouldn't be there with him if she were. And he says, please promise me to never wear black satin or, por- or pearls or be 36 years old. And I was like, barf. Yeah. Like, <laughs> fuck off, dude. Yeah. Like, 36 is so old. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Mrs. I wonder, how, do, how old do you think Joan Fontaine is supposed to be? Um, I think that she's supposed to be just of age, so 18? Really? But I'm not so sure young. what of age meant yeah. in 1938 or 40. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mrs. Van Hopper's daughter is going to be married, and she wants to leave for New York at once. So this actually, I mean, this kind of goes with what you were saying about the new money thing, is like that New York. Mm-hmm. Like that's very much where like the new moneyed people are at this time. I wonder if Mrs. Van Hopper is supposed to be from the United States, like an American. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. too. Yeah, and I was kind of also thinking of, like, maybe a reach, but, like, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Yeah. I was thinking that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like the, the fat, new age, mm-hmm. new-moneyed, kind of independent woman who, yeah, is just, uh, you know, just kind of pushing her way into spaces. And invading spaces yes. like Monte Carlo. Yes. That the... European aristocracy have claimed as their own for so many years. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Our main gal, Joan (laughs) Fontaine, calls Max to tell him, but he's out. Uh, And she's, like, very distraught. Uh, She wants to see him before she leaves. She finds Max, and much to Mrs. Van Hopper's rage, he proposes to her. And, you know, he says, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. (laughs) And (laughs) she expresses some class anxiety over this as well. Like she doesn't feel that she fits into that world. Uh, Mrs. Van Hopper insists on taking responsibility for all the arrangement, but Max refuses. And when he leaves the room, she mocks Joan Fontaine and tells her uh, she'll have no idea how to manage Manderley. She has no idea how to be a great lady. And it's kind of this great monologue that. Mrs. Van Hopper has in the film. And uh, Mrs. Van Hopper also implies that Joan Fontaine was sexually promiscuous. Yes. Right? She says, have you been doing something you ought not to? And when Joan Fontaine doesn't know what she's talking about, she lets it drop. Um, but the, that starts this uh, unspoken you know, undercurrent about female sexuality in the film like what is appropriate sexuality and what is perverse Mm. and that plays out later when we as viewers are are asked to take sides between Rebecca and Maxim when we learn what actually happened it has everything to do with um, inappropriate feminine sexuality making her you know deserve to have the fate that she has Right. Yeah. They're hastily married at uh, kind of like a city hall building in Monte Carlo. 
And it, it rains on their way to Mandalay. Very ominous. And also it makes her look a mess. Yes. Yeah, it does. So she can't enter <laughs> in this right. grand manner. <laughs> They're in a convertible. Yes. So yeah. um, she already isn't prepared to be a grand lady of a grand manner. But on top of it, she's wearing crumpled clothes from the car ride. Her hair is wet. And she... Um, comes up to this grand manor that is so overwhelming. And when she walks in, the whole staff is in attendance, uh, and she is shocked at the number of people that are going to be serving her, and um, I think absolutely embarrassed and self-conscious about the way that she looks. Yes, absolutely. And there's this also this great shot of when she first sees Manderley of like mm-hmm. her face, and she's just... It's it's awe and it's horror <laughs> and just like fear, just absolute fear of what's to come. And like you said, the whole staff is in attendance and now we meet Mrs. Danvers. So Laura, <laughs> yes. can you describe Mrs. Danvers for us? Mrs. Danvers is um, stoic, cold, and completely contained except for her wild eyes that are like their own character throughout this film. She always wears uh, formal black dresses, very Victorian looking, Mm -hmm. high buttoned up collars. Um, Her hair is pulled up and always uh, perfect, but very severe. Um, She almost never expresses any kind of um, facial expression. She's just very flattened affect, very serious um, and very judgmental looking. So we get a shot in this initial scene where Mrs. Danvers looks Joan Fontaine up and down. We see her eyes moving, but her face doesn't reveal anything. And it's almost in that lack of responsiveness that is... Uh, the way that she gets under the skin of Joan Fontaine, it's it's so embarrassing to have someone so cold and so unresponsive silently judging you over and over and over again. Yes, and it, there's also, she's judging her, but I have a note here that the, the way that she looks at her is also kind of gay. <laughs> like <laughs> Looking up and down. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. It's both things. Yeah. And, but... Maybe looking her up and down for, you know, what's the potential here and then deciding immediately that she will never live up to the sexual glamour um, and poise that Rebecca had and that Mrs. Right. Danvers is completely obsessed with obsessed. even after her yeah, death. Yeah, yeah, she is that ex-girlfriend who will love you forever (laughs) and keep your underwear yeah (laughs) yeah and there's kind of this moment where uh joan fontaine like drops something Mm -hmm. and mrs danvers and her both bend down to pick it up and their faces kind of touch yes it's like that classic scene in like a romantic comedy where people reach into the popcorn together and their hands touch and yes it's this romantic spark but also in the scene where she drops I think it's a handkerchief 
uh, it's showing how she doesn't know how to be the boss. Right, right, yeah. And uh, though Mrs. Danvers seems to hold power in this relationship, it may be that Mrs. Danvers really loves to be the sub, right? Because she served Rebecca with devotion and Rebecca knew how to really top her. Yes, to command her. To yes, command her. yes. Let's yeah. bring the king to Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And um, Joan Fontaine failed at that test because yes. she bent over to pick up her own handkerchief. Yeah, no, than, Joan Fontaine is a total yeah. bottom. Yeah. She's 100%. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. not, not ever. I mean, she's like Max's little girl, basically. So in the in the woman's room, uh, Mrs. Danvers and her have a chat. We find out that Mrs. Danvers first came to Manderley when Rebecca was a bride. And uh, the woman says she's going to leave all the household arrangements to Mrs. Danvers, uh, you know, which. Oh, go ahead. I'm, I just saw your note that says creepy dog really yeah. big. I wrote the same thing. I'm so glad. I'm yeah. so sorry to jump ahead. No, 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 no. Everywhere yeah. that Mrs. Danvers is or the ghost of Rebecca is, there is a creepy, devotional, loyal dog. Named sort of Jasper. Named yeah. Jasper. Yeah. And um, so when they're having this initial conversation about the household duties, that's when we first see um, this dog sort of, weaving in and out of the scenes somehow ominously i don't know how they made a dog seem ominous and it's like and a creepy. very cute dog yeah. too yeah. yeah and it's but they made it ominous mm-hmm. i mean the dog who knows what i don't know what color that the dog actually was but on in this film the dog looks like a black dog yeah. and it's just kind of like stalking there's very random shots of just the dog yes like after they have this talk and um the, you know, she says, I'm going to leave, you know, everything to you, which Mrs. Danvers accepts, but is also obviously, you know, not impressed by her. Yeah. Uh, and she keeps alluding to the sea, like, oh, of course, but this room doesn't have a view of the sea. <laughs> then we see this shot of the dog just alone, like in this huge hallway. I think guarding the door yes. to the West Wing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that the dog, you know, I, I don't need to always bring it back to kink, but you should. That's okay. <laughs> I'm encouraging it. Like Mrs. Danvers, the dog is sort of this ultimate submissive, um, like devoted beyond death, beyond yes. the grave to Rebecca, to guarding her memory um, in that what is represented in that West West Wing that we learn later is pristinely kept by Mrs. Danvers and guarded by the dog yes. so that nothing changes. Right. And the dog, it, it also leads Joan Fontaine to like little clues mm-hmm. about Rebecca's life. It's just very... Jasper is very much a presence in this movie, (laughs) Uh, which I never noticed before, actually. Like, only on this watch did I notice it. So we meet, uh, the next day, the woman meets Frank Crawley, who manages the estate. And Max tells her that his sister Beatrice and her husband are coming over. And then he leaves with Crawley to take care of some business. Uh, Joan Fontaine is very out of place. She doesn't really she doesn't know her way around. Frith the butler, who's very nice, mm-hmm. <laughs> gently tries to kind of instruct her on what to do and where to go in the house. Like, oh, you know, the the other Mrs. De Winter would always uh, do her write her letters in the morning room after breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like. But even that gentle guidance is 
so creepy because they're all, all the entire house is functioning like clockwork around this absence that yes. is Rebecca. So they their their routines continue in the exact same way. So rather than asking Joan Fontaine whether she wants what she wants to do, they just have it all set up for her. So like now you're supposed to go to the next. They miss her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean they're so devoted to Rebecca in mm-hmm. a way that they're not really devoted to Max. Mm-hmm. Like they and. Even though it's his estate, it's it's kind of her, yeah, her ghost rules everything. Really, I don't I don't see them as having as much of an attachment to Max as they did to Rebecca. I mean, that could also just be that I start to get I start to fall in love with Rebecca in this <laughs> yeah. movie. I'm like, I want to see Rebecca. <laughs> I want to see what she looked like. Right, right. Uh, and I think that also has to do with her role as the domestic in the domestic space, yes. right? Because she is the the woman of the house. She was the one interacting with everyone and running the estate and making it grand. Um, and Maxim is always gone. Yeah, he's, he's never there. On yeah, business, whatever that means. He's right. never there. Yeah, yeah. So she seems to feel Rebecca's presence everywhere. Like we hear that synthesizer (laughs) and, you know, she's walking through the rooms. The dog is kind of following her through the rooms. Everything, just like you were saying, everything is just as Rebecca left it. And even her monogram notebooks are there on her desk. Rebecca monogrammed everything yes there's monogrammed napkins yes. stationery yep. notebooks Goals. address yeah. book <laughs> yeah <laughs> she just put her mark on everything yeah um, I, I blankets yeah, I love it. handkerchiefs yeah. pillowcases yes <laughs> and then you know that last shot of the movie is that yeah. that pillowcase yeah. she, uh joan fontaine even answers the telephone when somebody asks for mrs de winter and she says oh mrs de winter died a year ago <laughs> Like she doesn't even feel like she's Mrs. DeWinter Not yet. Yep. <laughs> and I think it's clear also that Mrs. Danvers like kind of hates her and thinks she's a twit. Uh, and the sister arrives. I love this character too. I love Beatrice. And uh, the woman overhears Beatrice and her husband Giles. Uh, talking about her and Giles implies that he thinks she's an ex-chorus girl and you know she hears all of that they realize she's in the room and uh, they're you know they they all start talking and uh, I love Beatrice is like Giles you're very much in the way here go somewhere else (laughs) and she you know we see all these women who can command attention and command their their husbands in contrast with Joan Fontaine who really has She's totally pushed around by everybody around her. Yeah. And that his assumption that she is a a chorus girl is so classed. Right. And I think there's a sort of interesting thread throughout that I don't quite know what to make of um, with Joan Fontaine's character being sort of aligned with sex work. So yes. she's a paid companion to Mrs. Van Hopper. He assumes she's a chorus girl, which I think is coded for someone. A lady of the yeah. night, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or minimally uh, a woman who is willing to 
dance in you know scantily clad in front of people for money. Yes. Um, and so I think there there's something really going on there regarding class and their assumption of her as maybe a, an opportunist or yes. someone who a is, gold digger. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and also I think they're they're also kind of thinking like why else would Max marry so much lower yeah. than his station unless she was this like siren. Right. And then they meet her and they say that she's not and it's shocking to yeah. them. Yeah, they they say, you know, do you look very different than we thought you were going to look. Uh so all of the Oh, I have a note here. All the women in this movie are cool, except the main character. <laughs> <laughs> I was like on another level during this rewatch. Uh, Beatrice tells her uh, that she think they, she assumes Mrs. Danvers would be jealous because she adored Rebecca. Yeah. And I love the little uh, nods to the character's lack of a name, too. Like at lunch when the when Beatrice says that Mrs. De Winter must have a party. And she says, I'm sure you and uh, and Max cuts her off. Yes. <laughs> right. So <laughs> funny. Can't say the name, right? Yeah, exactly. Giles keeps asking her if she can do all these rich people things like riding horses and sailing. He's and, like, don't you do anything? Yeah. And she's like, no, I have no I idea. sketch a little. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, when when they mention Mrs. Danvers and how she adored Rebecca, that's our first clue, really, about the sort of coded lesbian desire that's going on between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. And I think it's really interesting that if if the figure of Rebecca is is this absent presence throughout the film that sort of haunts um, the film. The what can't be spoken around many things, but very much around um, queer desire is is also a thread that goes throughout. So in that conversation, the sister, Maxim's sister, says, um, you know, I've never met anyone quite like her talking about Mrs. Danvers. She says, you mean she scares you? Uh, oh, he says this. He means she scares you. She isn't exactly an oil painting, is she? <laughs> and the sister says, there's no need to be frightened of her, but you shouldn't have any more to do with her than you can help. And then she says she's bound to be insanely jealous. She must be, you know, uh, resent you bitterly because she adored Rebecca. But um, it's that sort of hint at avoiding her. Very coded. Yeah, it's yeah. very coded. And it implies that uh, she knows a little bit about maybe what was going on in that dynamic. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's very. Uh, yeah, she's the, uh, the 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 lesbian that you know people never say it, but they're mm -hmm. like, you don't want to get too close right. to her. Watch out for that one. Yeah, watch yeah. out for that one. Something mm -hmm. off about that <laughs> one. Yeah. So. Giles, yeah, he keeps asking her. He asks her if she can sail, and this triggers Max because it reminds him of water. And Beatrice is so mean to Joan Fontaine in the way that only a very rich person could be. Like, I can tell by the way you dress that you don't give a hoot about how you look. <laughs> like, she's, it's, it's backhanded. Like, it's framed as it might be a compliment, but it's obviously not. And she says she's surprised hasn't Max hasn't gotten on her about uh, about how she dresses and how she looks and but that's why Max likes her she she's unpretentious and she also tells her that Max has a horrible temper which you know we kind of already yeah. knew at this point we know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the woman can't tell that Beatrice is being a bitch or maybe she does uh, but she, you know she's she's kind of hungry for like any little scraps of friendship or affection and you know she's not 
she doesn't stand up for herself around her. She just kind of lets Beatrice treat her like this. And she, Beatrice also alludes to Rebecca and the whole story, quote unquote. Yeah, she says, but of course you know the whole story. Right. So again, what the unspoken, Joan Fontaine is wandering through this relationship in this house with everyone around her, assuming that she knows things that she doesn't. Yes. And she doesn't know she's completely yeah. in the dark yeah. about, about what's going on. Yeah. Max puts her coat on her in one scene and says, you can't be too careful with children, like you mentioned. They go down by the sea and she runs after Jasper, who runs away to this shack by the sea. And uh, it's where they store sailboat equipment. And this creepy old man named Ben Ben pops out of the shack. And I kind of saw him as like this kind of, you know, gothic harbinger of like Mm. bad things to come. Like very kind of like grotesque figure who you know is just kind of portentous and like otherworldly and he yeah yeah and yes and in a way that a lot of horror films use disability as uh, this cue of something otherworldly but also scary Um, I think that's what's going on with Ben. He's supposed to be not all there mentally. He's been threatened with being put in an insane asylum. Yes. Um, He reminds me of Redfield from Dracula. Yes. So, right? Renfield, Renfield, yeah. yeah. So um, someone who's just like a little bit uh, off mentally but also maybe has a kind of prescience because of that. Yeah, that's the perfect way to put it is like their their cognitive impairment allows them to like see other realms. Mm-hmm. Very common in horror film. Yeah. I talk about this actually a lot on the podcast about how people with disabilities or or def- people with de- disabilities, mental or deformities, mm-hmm. visual deformities are used to portend horror and dread. Yeah. Um, and it still even happens today in oh, films. Yeah. yeah, like my, I always use this on this podcast, so sorry, listeners, but Midsommar, if you saw that, yes. the, the little boy with the facial deformity is used to kind of heighten the horror right. of everything. And really has no other role. No. I really hate that trope, and I really wish it would yeah. die, honestly. It <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not okay. So the man says that he knows the dog. And the woman goes into the shack and gets rope to tie the dog up and sees Rebecca's monogrammed handkerchief. So more monogrammed mm-hmm. things. And uh, Max is pissed off that she ran away. And he tells her to never go back to that shack again. And uh, he also says that they never should have come back to Manderley. And she cries and he calms her down. It's really abusive. Mm-hmm. He loves seeing her cry. This is typical trauma bonding, which this is my PSA on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Trauma bonding is not when you talk about your trauma with someone else. <laughs> right. Trauma bonding is is when somebody deliberate is deliberately is awful to you and in some way, like Max right now yelling at her, upsetting her, treating her horribly. And it, it's somebody causes you to be upset and then they comfort you even though they're the one who caused right. the pain. So that's trauma bonding. And it happens over and over again yes. in this film. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of his MO. Mm-hmm. He really, uh, he feels, I think, most in love with her when he sees her cowering 
and crying in front like of him. Like a child. Yeah, like a little girl. Yeah. yeah. And in this scene, notably, she starts to feel comforted by him. And so she's, you know, getting herself together and reaches into the pocket of her coat and pulls out a handkerchief to dab her eyes and looks down and realizes with horror that there's an R. It's the R. <laughs> yeah, she's everywhere. Yeah. She runs into Crawley again and asks about Ben. And she asks if all of those things in the shack are Rebecca's and what did she use it for? And Crawley is reluctant to talk about it. And that is where she kept the boat that she drowned in. And she was a fearless woman, he says. And, you know, spoiler, it's her sex hut. Yeah. (laughs) It's where she goes to fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Very creepy place to go. But the, the woman says she knows everyone is comparing her to Rebecca. And Crawley says he thinks that she's actually great for Max and she's someone who isn't in tune with Manderley. And she feels she's lacking in beauty and wit. She's He says she's kind and sincere, which means more to a husband, which is like such a backhanded compliment. Yeah. And uh, I, my note here is can't relate. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she asks him what Rebecca was really like. And he says, I suppose she was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. And the music swells. <laughs> and, you know, Joan Fontaine is just distraught. And then she gets an idea. Yes. And we have a beauty montage. Yes, <laughs> where she looks at a Vogue, an yeah. old Vogue catalog, and uh, orders a dress. And she wears this new dress to dinner for, she with Max. wears her hair back. Wears her hair back. Does Yeah, because she's always got her hair just kind of whatever and max is a total fucking jerk to her (laughs) in this new dress he's kind of like why are you wearing that what did you do yeah and they watch footage from they took from their honeymoon and firth interrupts to tell them that mrs danvers has accused one of the servants robert of breaking a china cupid very you know cupid Eros, I felt like that was kind of significant, the symbolism here of, like, Mrs. Danvers' love for Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Max admits to her, uh, Max admits to Danvers that his Mrs. DeWinter broke it because she, like, confesses to Max, like, I broke the China Cupid. Yeah, and so earlier when she was kind of running around the house trying to escape servants. Yeah. <laughs> She's looking at the stationery in the morning room where Rebecca used to write her letters and she knocks this Cupid off the desk and um, because she feels like an interloper in that space rather than the the rightful person in that room, she hides it in the back of a drawer and right. doesn't tell anybody about it. Right, right. Like a, like a kid. Like yeah. a kid would do. Yeah. He mocks her for being scared of Mrs. Danvers. And, uh, you know, she says to Max she feels out of place, that she's being sized up. Uh, she says he ge- she guesses that's why he married her, because she's boring and there would never be any gossip about her. And mm-hmm. Max flies off the handle and he's like, gossip? What do you mean gossip? And his face is like shrouded in this dark, high contrast shadow. It's very creepy. And she tries to take it back. And she says, I just wanted to say something to say. <laughs> uh, and she's so afraid of him. It like makes is so afraid of making him angry. And Max said he thinks he's selfish for marrying her and that he's not a good companion and she should have married a boy. Like, fuck you, bro. They're already married. What do you expect her to do now? (laughs) She insists that their marriage is a success and that they're happy. It's like kind of this really sad, pathetic line she has. And 
he says, if you say we're happy, let's leave it at that. Happiness is something I know nothing about. Yeah. Just such a typical brooding gothic man stereotype. Uh, Max leaves her alone to go to London. So she's alone in the house again for like the second time already. And she's moping. And she sees a figure skulking about the West Wing where she's not really permitted to go. Um, or, or she is, but she feels like she can't go there. Yeah, so when she arrived, uh, Maxim intentionally made her room be in the East Wing, um, even though no one had used that wing for many years. So he was also trying to keep her out of the West Wing. And Mrs. Danvers is talking about the West Wing a lot, partially because it's the only room with a view of the sea. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... So she sees this figure skulking. She goes, she journeys over there. And she listens in on this conversation between Mrs. Danvers and somebody named Jack. Jack Favell, right? And this is when she meets Jack, who's like obviously coded as a kind of a cad. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Danvers is upset that they've met. Jack asks her to not tell Max about her visit because he doesn't like him. But you know who does like him? Jasper the dog. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he he says he's Rebecca's favorite cousin. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. De Winter now, the, Joan Fontaine, explores Rebecca's old room, which is gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, so I, in my notes, I wrote the West Wing slash the bedroom scene. So yeah. when she goes into the West Wing to see this beautiful room, um, it is probably the most um, heightened kind of sexual tension in the entire film. Yeah. And uh, so it and it's all about sort of blowing sheer curtains and. Um, the epitome of classy, sophisticated femininity. It reminds me a lot of the scene from The Hunger. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. Where, where Susan everything Sarandon, is sheer. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, spills a little wine on her blouse and is in the apartment of the vampire. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Deneuve yeah, Catherine helps her clean yeah. it up. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, definitely. And um, so that kind of... Feminized sexuality is really present when she moves from the dark, high contrast, gothic shadows of the rest of the house into this bedroom that was once Rebecca's. Yeah, and it's—I mean—the set design is just like gorgeous. That your the vampire comparison is very apt because Mrs. Danvers kind of appears like a vampire. Kind of reminds me also of Gloria Holden and Dracula's daughter. Yes. Like she's, I like I said earlier, she is almost comically always just appearing appearing. yeah (laughs) and then disappearing yeah she makes no noise she's just walking off yep (laughs) it's like she's an entity yeah and nothing's been touched so mrs danvers has obviously kept her room just pristine uh she ecstatically shows off all of rebecca's clothes she rubs one of her fur coats on her face she rubs it on joan fontaine's face yes i think like that is a kind of a triangulation. So by um, Mrs. Danvers forcing Joan Fontaine to touch Rebecca's intimate things with her, they're they're sort of uh, having a homoerotic moment with each other through this absent third party that's Rebecca. And so uh, Joan Fontaine is completely creeped out by this circumstance. And 
Mrs. Danvers is forcing her to walk through as if she were Rebecca. Yep. Talking. So she keeps gesturing. Come here. Come sit here. Down. She makes her sit. Move over here. I and used then, to brush her hair yeah. like this. And yeah. uh, she, it, um, Joan Fontaine won't can't even make eye contact with her. She's so creeped out. She's almost frozen in fear when uh, Mrs. Danvers says, "Here, feel feel this. Rub this fur on your face." Yes, you know? it's yeah, yeah, it's an incredible scene. They're both mm-hmm. the, both actresses are amazing in this scene as well. And she also shows her her underwear. Yes. She shows her the, her this monogram pillowcase she made her, mm-hmm. and this nighty. She pulls out like a negligee, a sheer um, uh, nightgown out from underneath the monogrammed pillowcase that Mrs. Danvers made lovingly for Rebecca and uh, holds it out in this m- maybe most famous scene Yes, <laughs> um, with her so hand. Sheer. It's yeah. so sheer. And she says with this like glint in her eye, you know, did you ever see anything so delicate? Look. You can see my hand through it. Yeah. And that is the last straw for Joan Fontaine. She's like, oh, no, this is creepy. Something's wrong. And she, you know, tries to leave the scene at that point. Yeah. And Mrs. Danvers talking about how she can see her hand through it. We imagine that Mrs. Danvers was always seeing her body and Rebecca's body through this and remembering that in that Mm -hmm. scene. I just got chills. Mm -hmm. Judith Anderson's acting is so good. Uh, Mrs. DeWinter, right, she she leaves. She's distraught. Do you think in this scene that uh, Joan Fontaine is aware of the homoerotic elements going on here? I do. I think that um, that's one of the, the unspoken presences in the scene. I absolutely think it's intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So Mrs. Danvers uh, corners her, and she says she can still hear Rebecca walking through the house. She says, do you think the dead come back and watch the living? She gets in her face as Joan Fontaine is, like, crying. And she says, why don't you stay here a while and rest and listen to the sea? It's so soothing. And she goes to the window and keeps repeating to herself, listen to the sea, like a lunatic. she's like, listen. Listen to the sea. Yeah. Listen to it. Yes. And she goes. She gets into these trances. Yes. And just sort of wanders off. Yep. Yeah. yeah. She is not well. <laughs> she she asserts. Uh, the woman asserts herself with Mrs. Danvers by demanding she get rid of all of Rebecca's things at her writing desk. Yeah. So after that scene where she, it's the last straw. It's the last yeah. straw. And and I do think it's like okay, this woman can't have power over me anymore because she's. A pervert. I I do think that's what it is. She's like, you know what? I think I can take back the power because now I know that Mrs. Janvers isn't some amazing house person. Like, she's just a creep. Yeah. And so she goes into the morning room and she says, I'm going to take charge. I am going to get rid of all of these monogrammed things. And she calls Mrs. Danvers in and tells her that. And Mrs. Danvers is horrified by this um and she says but but these are mrs de winter's things and in this amazing line joan fontaine stands up straight and says i am mrs de winter now yeah yeah she's 
Taking charge. She's taking charge. But she little does she know that Mrs. Danvers has something up her sleeve. Yep. Because she's going to beg Max to have a costume ball. And he reluctantly agrees. Mrs. Danvers, in a moment where Joan Fontaine thinks she's being nice to her, she tells her to look at the family portraits in the hall for costume inspiration and points out Max's favorite one, which is a portrait of Caroline de Winter. And she should suggests that she have the dress copied. And it's the night of the costume party. There's some good outfits in this scene. And there's a design montage. Yes, design montage. And I will montage. say, you know, she's, she likes to sketch. It's the one thing she does. Mm-hmm. So she finally has purpose yes. in trying to design this outfit for the costume mm-hmm. ball. And so she try, she sketches all this these different ideas. A lot of them are kind of more androgynous costumes, uh, uh, ideas for dress being dressed as a knight, for example. Oh, that I found interesting. Yeah, yeah I thought it was like maybe a Joan of Arc thing. Yeah, or something. but yeah. none of them are right. So she crumples them up and throws them in the trash. And so what brings us to the scene where Mrs. Danvers suggests that she dress as one of the ancestors in the portrait gallery is Mrs. Danvers come in, comes in and has pulled her sketches out of the garbage and says, did you mean to throw these away? Right. And so there's this level of surveillance. Yeah. So Joan Fontaine that night, she descends the stairs dressed as Caroline de Winter, and she's excited to surprise Max. Max is horrified, and he yells at her to go change immediately. And she runs away in tears, uh, following Mrs. Danvers and demanding to know why she would do this and why she hates her. And Mrs. Danvers says she's trying to take Rebecca's place and that she could n- she could never beat Rebecca. The only thing that could take her out was the sea itself. <laughs> and she tells her that she should leave and that Max doesn't love her and she has nothing to live for. And she torments her, like chiding her to jump to her death out the window. It's a very ominous scene. Yes, she's she like, is, why don't you just jump? Yeah, very sort of gently and calmly trying to get her to... Uh, jump out of the window and uh, she says look down there it's easy isn't it why don't you why don't you go on don't be afraid yeah very softly in her ear right Mm -hmm. and suddenly there's this giant commotion about a shipwreck that's washed to the shore and she runs after max and she runs there's it's a little unclear the timing of it, like because they say in one scene, like, "Oh, last night when you ran off to mm-hmm. the, the shipwreck," but she's in she's a, a different outfit and everything. So I was like unclear of how the timing was working there. But she runs off into the the misty night, and it's very spooky. And she runs into Ben, who says she won't come back, will she? The other one, <laughs> just afraid of Rebecca. And she encounters Crawley, who tells Rebecca, uh, who tells her that Rebecca's boat washed up on shore, and that this is going to bring back all this trauma for Max. And she sees a light on in the shack from before, and she finds Max sitting in it. And this is where we find out what happened. So. Max reveals that Rebecca's body has been found in this shipwreck. And Joan Fontaine is very confused because he had said earlier that her body washed on shore when she died. And he confesses to his to her that the marriage was like a sham, basically. Like Rebecca had no intention of keeping her vows. She would pretend to be this perfect wife and hostess for the sake of appearances. Uh, but she would have extramarital affairs, very much her own person. <laughs> Terrible. (laughs) I know. I was like, good for her, whatever. Well, and she (laughs) tells him, though, she tells him the day after they get married, but she takes him aside and says, 
he says that she told me all about herself, everything, things I'll never tell a living soul. And to me, that has to do with her sexual promiscuity, but also I think it's coded queerness as well. I think she was bisexual. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I think she was also having an affair with Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. And uh, she was a free... She was a free bitch. Right. She was sailing boats, getting married just to be rich, having any kind of affair she wanted to. Yeah. She sounds cool, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But what we're supposed to, as viewers, take away from this scene is that, oh, well, if she died, if he killed her accidentally or on purpose, it was absolutely coming to her. Yes. Yeah. And we're supposed to feel sympathy for him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know. It, it's a... Uh, very much we're supposed to support the the heterosexual love story at the center of this and i'm always just like, Meh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. rebecca and mrs danvers forever <laughs> uh he he also he says that she had an affair and she claimed she was pregnant by another man and like mocked him that his estate might be passed down mm-hmm. to another man's heir which again reminds me of the castle of otranto mm-hmm. like it's like a very gothic storyline that the the, the thing that drives the patriarch to obsessive ruin is the threat to their lineage and that they'll lose their, you know, paternal right to yes. land or yeah. title. It's the ultimate horror for yeah. a man. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when he, you know, kind of loses it and they have this heated argument. And during the argument, she struck her head and died. Yeah. Well, first he does hit her. Yes. And then she stumbles and falls down and strikes her head. So... You know, he he can claim that he it was an accident and he didn't mean to kill yeah, her. Sure. But he also was beating her. Yeah, before yeah. she fell down yeah. and hit her. Head That's why died. she fell down. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. So he basically killed her. Right. And to conceal the truth, Maxim took the body out in a boat, which he scuttled. Um, I think what he he like drilled holes he, in yeah, it. He, yeah, he knocked some holes in it and he opened something. Yeah, the, to make it. Yeah, sink. I don't understand boats, but <laughs> yeah, he made. Yeah, I don't. Either. Yeah, he made the boat sink, <laughs> and then identified another body as Rebecca's. Yeah. So the woman is sh- is shocked to learn that Max actually hated Rebecca, and right. Yeah, yeah he's shocked to think to learn that she thought he loved Rebecca. So they have been miscommunicating. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So he says, "You thought I loved Rebecca. I hated her." And right. what's amazing about this scene from Joan Fontaine's perspective is that she uh, is upset that he kind of killed his wife, but also she is thrilled that he hated her. Yes. Like, she's like, oh, you hated her? That entire time? Yeah, suddenly she just, like, gets her energy back and she's like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take care of this situation. She's suddenly confident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he says about Rebecca, she was incapable of love. Um, And, you know, Joan Fontaine says she's going to stick by Max no matter what and that she will love him. And uh, as the inquest approaches, right, because they're kind of they have to do an investigation because Mm -hmm. the body that they thought was Rebecca is not her. So they're doing an investigation and um, Max and his new wife are closer than and more in love than ever. and he says that he he unfortunately he killed her innocence when he told her about Rebecca. And I'm like, well, yeah, I yeah. mean. <laughs> but, and she does change. She yeah. pulls her hair back. She wears a black ribbon in her hair. Good point. She's got yeah. much more sort of sophisticated clothing on all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And she starts to become the mommy. She's like, all right, we're going to you keep your temper. 
we're going to make sure this is okay, you know, and she starts to take some of the lead there. And his response to that is, well, it's gone forever. That funny, young, lost look I love, I killed it when I told you about Rebecca. And in a few hours, you've grown so much older, right? Yeah. And so he's sad that she has become 36, you know, or whatever (laughs) whatever that represents. So old, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) She's, yeah, exactly. She's not a a little girl anymore. Exactly. But he's such a defeatist, like in that gothic brooding hero way. He's like, it's over. It, it's I'm lost. gonna go to the jail. I knew Rebecca yeah. would win in the end. You know, yeah, no, he keeps whiny. talking about how she would. He knew she would win. Yeah. You know, he gives up. Yeah, he totally gives up. I mean, yeah. Rebecca is com- is dominating him even from the grave. Mm-hmm. Like he, you know, she's. But it's like he steps into the more passive role, mm-hmm. and uh, then Joan Fontaine, Mrs. De Winter, now comes in and she's like, okay, we're gonna we're going to take care of this. Yeah. Do, you do not give up. She's so renewed with purpose. Yeah. yeah. And the boat expert at the inquest <laughs> says that there's no way that the boat could have capsized and it seems like it was sunk on purpose. Uh, Max heats up under scrutiny because he knows what he did. And Joan Fontaine kind of faints like during the inquest and uh, Rebecca's lover approaches Joan Fontaine and Maxim, and he, and he attempts Jack Favell. So her he quote unquote favorite cousin, her favorite which cousin, which is coded for lover. Yes, who was actually yeah. her lover, who was the man that she got pregnant by, and he attempts to black blackmail Maxim by threatening to reveal that there was no way that Rebecca was suicidal in any way. Like yeah. she would never have sunk in this boat herself. And, uh, you know, Jack is kind of coded as like somebody who doesn't have a lot of money either. He's a motor car salesman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's and also new, mm-hmm. newish. But has to work for, yeah. for his money. Yeah. 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 Like he's the, definitely uh, supposed to be on the same level as Mrs. Danvers in terms of class. Oh, I think. Okay. Yeah. So they're kind of um, in cahoots. Right. Right. And Rebecca was also fucking down <laughs> like as well. Yeah. Um, so. Everyone questions Mrs. Danvers, who refuses to betray Rebecca. Like, she probably knew everything about her, but she's refusing to. She thought she knew everything. Yeah, she about thought her. she knew everything. <laughs> yeah, and she refuses to betray her. And she, this is so funny. She says she laughed at all these men behind their backs. Mm-hmm. She probably did. Yeah. Like, she probably went home to Mrs. Danvers and was like, Jack thinks I love him. He's a fool. Like, Maxim is a fool. <laughs> like, I, uh, I mean, Mrs. Danvers was like the, the confidant. Yeah. Kind of. And Maxim goes to the police. They ex- suspect him of murder. However, they go and they, they talk to Rebecca's doctor. Her secret doctor. Her secret doctor, who is well, also like a lower class doctor. Right. A kind of a crappy doctor's office yeah. that they say she had been going to this doctor secretly since before she was married. And he it, it's implied that he's kind of like a, a gynecologist. Yeah. And he, he gives abortions. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, so that also implies that she was having sex before she was married. Probably getting like prophylactics, mm-hmm. having abortions. Mm-hmm. All of yeah. these quote unquote bad things that how dare she yeah Yeah. that are supposed to make us think that again what she got was what she deserved because she is a bad perverse woman right right and the doctor reveals that she was not pregnant but was terminally ill due to cancer so the suicide theory holds up yes but it was in fact suicide by 
Maxim. By proxy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Maxim realizes. Yeah. He realizes that Rebecca has been trying to goad him into killing her mm-hmm. via indirect suicide uh, so that Maxim would have been ruined. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it is notable that the doctor looks in his record and he says, there's no one here by the name of Mrs. De Winter. And he starts to read out the names on the list of his patients. And the name that she has been using for this alternate doctor is Danvers. Mm. So this also lends a little bit of credence to the idea that that uh, it's it's definitely this sort of queer kinship relationship that in in uh, her interactions with this doctor since before she was married. She must have known Mrs. Danvers since yes. before she was married. And she took her name. She yeah. took her name and Mrs. Danvers followed her mm-hmm. to Manderley to work for mm-hmm. her. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> they... I mean, I buy that, that they had, like, a closer relationship than Rebecca had with her sure. other lovers. Yeah. Like, they, you know, Mrs. Danvers was taking care of her. Yeah. Um. So, a free man, Max, returns home to Manderley, which is on fire, <laughs> set ablaze by... Mrs. Danvers. Yeah. And uh, all escape except Danvers, who goes down with the house. In the West Wing. In the West she Wing. She gets trapped in the West Wing, fire all around her until the ceiling collapses on her and she goes down with the house. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the film ends with that R monogrammed nightdress case. I thought it was a pillowcase, but I guess it's a nightdress case. Okay. Yeah, whatever. And <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's 2020. We I don't. Gotta get we don't have that. Yeah, <laughs> I want one yeah, though. Me too. Yeah, uh, consumed by flames, and that is the end of Rebecca. So, what do you think about this ending? As it, you know, in the, the tradition of of the Gothic. Well, I think the ending definitely centers the relationship between Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers, considering that nightdress case was the was a gift, you know, lovingly embroidered by Mrs. Danvers for Rebecca. Um, they also essentially, uh, Mrs. Danvers says, "You can't take this house from Rebecca. I'll ha- I'll see it destroyed before you do that." So, um, she and Rebecca's ghost in the house are essentially buried together in the ruins of of this sort of once grand manner. And so that kind of uh, queer bonding through melancholy and death is super gothic. Um, Alternate ways of finding um, eternal romance and togetherness, that's very gothic. That's how I read it as queer gothic. It's so romantic. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm I'm so sick. I'm like, how beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But also the fact that that house, um, we see its ruin. And in a kind of a beautiful decay, yes. you know, I think that that's that's particularly gothic as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful ending shot. <laughs> so that is Rebecca. Yes, thank you so much, Laura. Uh, where can people find you on social media if you want them to? Thank you so much for having me here. This was so amazing. This was and amazing. Fun. And my, yeah, I would love to have you back. My queer baby self yeah. is just thrilled to be able to talk about Rebecca for yes, this long. So yay. I am on Instagram. Um, I'm Lala Westengard, and um, I'm on Facebook, L Westengard. Um, you can also, you know, Google me and find me through my institution, New York City College of Technology. You 
know, my information is out there. Great. Yeah. And you know where to find me, as always. Girls Guts Giallo on Instagram and Twitter. Patreon.com slash Girls Guts Giallo. And until next time, I'll see you all next week. Bye.